Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Let me invite you to take your Bible this evening and join me in 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. And what we're going to do tonight and over the following five weeks is do a survey of how to study and teach the Bible. We have finished a series on systematic theology. And now we're going to just simply take a few weeks and talk about some very simple principles related to how to properly interpret the Bible. Unfortunately, most people do not know how to do this because they have not been taught or perhaps they're not motivated to learn. And so I hope that what we do tonight will be of help to all of us, even those that do not presently have a a teaching ministry, because all of us are responsible, as we see here in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 15, to be diligent to present ourselves approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, who rightly divides the word of truth. That is not a responsibility just for a pastor. It is not a responsibility simply for a seminary professor. Uh, It is a responsibility for every child of God that they indeed know how to rightly divide the word of truth. And so what we're going to do tonight is kind of get an overview of what the process looks like. And then we'll come back in the following weeks and look at various facets of the overall process that we might be effective in ourselves rightly dividing the word. So if you look on page two, you'll see a chart that is rather uh, elaborate, but not really as much as you might think. And if you were to come to the seminary, And you were to take a class with me, say, perhaps in uh, hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. Uh, Or you were to take a class with me in preaching, how to preach the Bible. uh, Or even a class on methods of teaching. Uh, What you have before you tonight, for good or bad, right or wrong, is my model. Uh, This is the way that I teach it. And it is also the way that I do it. And uh, though I may not do it perfectly, this is what I try to do each and every time I teach from the Scriptures and I expound a particular text of the Word of God. It's really a simple process because it's only seven steps. Furthermore, there's some wonderful parallels between step one and seven, step two and six, and step three and five, which is why you have a pyramidic uh, diagram there that shows you the seven steps that I think are properly engaged when it comes to both studying the Bible and teaching the Bible. And again, the fact of the matter is all of us are going to teach the Bible. Whether we have a formal position or not, if you have children, you should be a teacher of the Bible. If you have grandchildren, you should be a teacher of the Bible. And where you live and where you work and where you play, you need to be capable to teach others 
the Bible. And so what is a way that we can get at this that gives us a system that is easily uh, transferred and easily implemented? Well, of course, first of all, we study the scriptures. If you want to talk about it in terms of a body, this is the flesh. You go into the word of God and you do two things. And there are two key words there that we're going to develop out over the next several weeks. One is observation. If you like, you can write beside the word observation, the question, what do I see? And you simply go to the text of Scripture and you take a good, long, hard look at the text. I was thinking about doing something out of Colossians or out of Second Timothy. It's kind of our test case, but because of the music that Matt gave us tonight, go ahead and turn over in your Bible to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And if it were to be that you had the assignment or in the course of studying through this particular book that you were going to teach from Revelation chapter 5, well, the first thing you would do is you would take a good, long, hard look at the fifth chapter. And one of the things you would look for are uh, words that are repeated. Uh, significant phrases, uh, particular concepts that you know are going to need to be explained. And just for time's sake, I would point out for you that the word throne occurs 18 times in chapter 4 and chapter 5. You say, well, why did you throw chapter 4 into it? Because actually it is one vision of two parts. Chapter 4 is a vision that gives attention to God the Father as the Creator. Chapter 5 complements that by giving attention to God the Son, who is the Redeemer. So the theme of redemption is in chapter 5, the theme of creation is in chapter 4, and they complement one another. And you would discover that the word throne occurs 18 times in those two chapters, and it occurs four times here in chapter 5. You would also discover uh, that the word scroll is very prominent in these 14 verses. You would also discover that the word worthy also occurs four times and is very prominently located in these verses. Now, for me, I go around always with a highlighter. Actually, what I have is a a wax pencil that has multiple colors because wax pencils won't bleed through your Bible. You use a, a pink or a, a, a yellow or a, 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 an orange highlighter, a green highlighter, and it'll bleed through your Bible. And so both sides are messed up. And so I use a wax pencil that does not bleed through. And I mark key words. So in my Bible, for example, I can see just like that, that the word scroll is in verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, verse 5, verse 7, verse 8, verse 9. That's it. So how do you know that? Because they're all marked in red. They're all marked in red. You want to know where the word worthy is? I'll show it to you because it's all marked in yellow. And I never study a text without having something that allows me to mark. And I'm always looking for key ideas. And that's just one example. We're going to develop this out of observation, asking the question, what do I see? And you just take a good, long, hard look at the text. Then secondly, interpretation, you raise and answer the question, what does it mean? Taking what I see... I now ask the question, what does it mean? And so, for example, the word throne occurs 18 times in two chapters, four times in one chapter. What does the word throne mean? Uh, What is the concept or the idea that is attached to the idea of the throne? Well, of course, the throne is a place of authority because the throne, who sits on the throne? God and God is king. And so the idea of his kingship, 
of his authority. Uh, that's what it's entailed with the idea of the throne. The scroll, well, you'll have to dig into that on your own some other time. But anyway, you ask those two questions then. Observation, what do I see? Interpretation, what does it mean? Now, just to give you a kind of a running start of that, if you'll turn to page three for just a moment. I've given you kind of a, a summation that gives you the idea of how to get at, in particular, step one, studying the Scriptures, and step two, structuring the Scriptures. That is, finding the scenes in the text, analyzing the argument, and even trying to come up with some type of outline that lets you see where the author begins to change his thought, moving perhaps from one subject to another subject or one topic to another topic. And so here's just a quick summation of how you would get at the idea of observation and interpretation. Well, it is valuable to study the book as a whole. And in terms of Revelation 5, we want to know how does it fit into this 22 chapter book. You would consider the question of date. When was it written? The author, who it was written to, the purpose for the writing. These are matters of what we call introduction. You say, well, Danny, where would I find information like that? Well, of course, last year we went through the New Testament in a survey form. So many of you have that material, but you can always go to a good study Bible like the Believer Study Bible or the MacArthur Study Bible or the NIV Study Bible. Go to the front of them and they're going to deal very briefly with introductory matters. You can and also, of course, buy books that deal with New Testament introduction, Old Testament introduction. And I indeed would say that all of you ought to do that and uh, use your money to buy a good book rather than some of the things you buy with your money when it comes to books. And I'll not pursue that, but you ought to be wise in what you buy. And so you can pick up things that will allow you to see these kind of issues. Yes, it is good to develop an outline of the entire book. And again, study Bibles and commentaries will help you do that if you're working your way through Revelation. You would know, for example, in chapter 1, verse 19, there's a key verse where he is told to write the things you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will happen are come after this. Well, it's very interesting. The things which he has seen is chapter 1, verses 1 and following. The things which are are the seven letters to the seven churches in chapter 2 and 3. And then very interestingly, the initial phrase of chapter 4 is, Come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. And so you've been given a divine outline in chapter 1, verse 19. And we are told that from chapter 4 to the end of the book, John is going to see things that are yet to come that are future to John's day. And in my judgment, there's still future to our day as well. And so you want to kind of see how the overall flow of the book fits and developing an outline is very helpful. Then you examine the relationship of the passage under consideration in both its near and its far context. You say, well, what comes before Revelation 5? Revelation 4. What's in Revelation 4? A vision of God the Father as the sovereign creator. You say, what comes in Revelation chapter 6? The beginning of the great tribulation. And you have there in chapter 6 the seal judgments that are open and broken by the Lamb who sits on the throne in chapter 5. You see, he has been slain. And he is now worshipped by humanity, he's worshipped by uh, uh, the angels, he's worshipped by all creation. He is the sovereign Lord. He has the right to do with this world anything he wants to. 
And so in chapter 6, he begins to break open the seals on the scroll. And what unfolds in chapter 6 through 19 is the tribulation period. And so, again, that helps me see. So, so chapter 5 is important. I think chapter 5 is the most important chapter in the entire book of the Revelation. I think everything moves toward it. And everything flows from it. And so it fits very strategically, and we would need to know that as we are looking at both its near and its far context. Then you want to establish the best textual base possible. If you can use the original languages, you should. If you can't, then compare various versions and translations. And let me say to you, the, probably the most accurate translation out there today uh, is the New American Standard Version. Uh, it is the most accurate not that you should think that the New King James is inaccurate, or the NIV is inaccurate, or the TEV, or many others. But the most, uh, the, 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 the translation that strives the most to follow the original text is the New American Standard. So if I were you, and I were studying the Bible, even if I teach out of the New King James like I do, I would always read what is in the New American Standard as well. But I also read the, the NIV. I read the message by Eugene Peterson. I read the, the New Living uh, Translation, which those are paraphrases. Although the New Living Translation is just a more free translation, the, the original Living Bible was a pure paraphrase. But I read many translations because in some sense, reading bears translations, especially the more paraphrastic, the paraphrase types, it's like reading a commentary. I'm not going to preach from it or teach from it, but I will indeed get insight many times from how a very gifted scholar has tried to translate it in the modern vernacular in such a way that people would easily understand what the author is trying to say. Then number three, investigate the text linguistically. And by that, we simply mean word by word. And so for this, we would say, make a, a study of crucial words. If I'm in chapter five, I'm going to make a study of the the word throne. Uh, I'm going to make a study of the word scroll. Uh, I would perhaps look up when I get at it, the phrase uh, uh, line of the tribe of Judah, root of David, uh, the idea that he has prevailed. Some translations say he has overcome. Some translations say he has conquered. Uh, I'm going to look up key words and there are dictionaries. They're called lexicons that will allow you to look at what the word meant in its context, the significance of it for the first century. And so you want to study the, the crucial words, both in terms of their grammatical meaning and, if uh, the case be so, also in their theological meaning as well. You know, in other words, you come across a word like uh, redemption. Uh, the word redemption means to pay a price in order to purchase something. You redeem it by paying. But the word becomes very heavy in terms of its theological significance when you look at it throughout the totality of Scripture so that it bears a lot more weight than just to pay a price to get something. We learn later that the price that is paid is nothing less than the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, First Peter says, you were purchased, you were redeemed, not by gold or silver or precious stone, but by the blood of a spotless lamb. And so I come to understand that word has great significance for the believing community just beyond the mere definition of to pay a price in order to purchase something. So you research the passage for key words. Like I said there, the, the idea of the, the throne, the idea of the scroll, perhaps the idea of worthy, perhaps the idea of slain. Uh, you also look for phrases. And I again mentioned uh, the idea of the line of the tribe of Judah. Well, where does that come from? 
established in Genesis 49. Uh, the root of David, where's that come from? Well, it's in Isaiah 11. And by the way, again, if you have a Bible like mine that has down the middle a, a critical kind of apparatus, and they'll have little letters over there, an A, a B, a C by a word, most of the time they're cross-referencing it for you. And if you were to go to my New King James and look up the phrase, line of the tribe of Judah, well, actually, I've never done it before, so I'll look and see right now if that's the case. Verse 5, go to my middle apparatus there, verse 5, and it tells me that that came from Genesis 49, verse 9. So there it is right there in a study Bible without me even having to go to a commentary or anything else. That's what that apparatus is doing for you where it lists all of those various uh, verses. All right. Then, and I say this to my students over and over and over and over and over and over. When we were in grammar school, around the fifth or sixth grade, maybe earlier if you went to a good school, you were taught that verbs are what kind of words? Action words. And so good Bible teachers will track the verbs. I will often uh, take a, a, a blank sheet of paper just like this, and I will walk through the text in English, and every time I see a verb, I write it down. Write all the, so that at the end, I can see all of the verbs that come from that particular passage. So if you're in verse 1, and I saw. So I'd write down the word saw. In the right hand of him who sat. On the throne. So he sees someone sitting. You say, that's so simple. Yeah, and a lot of times people just run right past that very simple stuff. Sitting on the throne, a scroll written. Written where? Well, inside. So anyway, saw, sat, written, sealed. And I'm going to write them all down. And you know what? What it allows you to do is see actually kind of clearly the line of argument that the author is making. Now you say, well, are all the verbs of equal significance? No. No, some of them carry more weight than others, and I think that will become evident as you walk your way through. I mean, when he says that the book is written inside and on the back, and that it is sealed, well, that's probably more important than the fact that he saw it. Although the fact that he saw it, he wouldn't have known that if he hadn't seen it, so maybe my argument's not very good there. So all the verbs there are important. And you just allow the verbs to help you develop the understanding of what you see in the text. And then cross-reference. That's why, for example, I'm a, a big fan of John MacArthur's commentaries. Uh, they do many good things. But Dr. John cross-references to death. Every single word or key concept that you'll ever find. One time I actually had a study guide of his on the book of Jonah. And if you know the book of Jonah, you know at the end of chapter 2, the person that ought to be really pitied by all of us is the great fish. Because the great fish had an upset stomach for three days and finally, bless God, he got to throw Jonah up. He got to vomit him out on the dry ground. Well, I get MacArthur's study guide, and can you believe this? That rascal looked up the word vomit every single time it occurs in the Bible. Listed it every time the word vomit occurred in the Bible. And his conclusion was, the word always means vomit. Every time. That, that Hebrew word always means to throw up or to vomit. Now, I'm glad John did that. And you see, if somebody else wants to do some of that work for me, Oh, I'm glad to let them do it. And so use good resources that will help you do what you do in a more expeditious time frame. I, again, have shared with my students that when I was 20, 21 years old and uh, I was just getting started in ministry, a church allowed me to be their uh, 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 interim associate pastor. 
That's what you call no job security. Interim associate pastor. But they also let me preach on Wednesday nights and paid me $25 a week to do so. I would have done it for free, but they let me preach on Wednesday nights. They paid me $25. And so I taught for the first time in my life through the book of James. And I want you to know, I probably studied about 20 hours every single week to preach to a Wednesday night crowd that was about, oh, a fifth of this size, if not smaller. Well, what took me 20 hours when I was 21 years old, I can now do today in about seven. Get the same results, seven hours, not 20 hours. You say, why? Because you just get better by doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. But the key is you've got to get started somewhere. Then number four, examine the form or forms of the material in the passage. What is the literary type? Well, Revelation is apocalyptic. That means it's highly, highly symbolic. The symbols stand for real things. But, for example, when you come here, uh, let's say, for example, to the end of verse 6, where he says, I saw a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Now, what in the world do you do with that? Do you actually think tonight that Jesus has seven horns poking out of his head up there in heaven? Do you think he's got seven eyes above his nose? Do you think there actually are seven spirits of God when the Bible says everywhere there's only one Holy Spirit of God? No. This is symbolic language. Now, it stands for real things. Horns in the Bible stand for strength. Seven stands for that which is perfect. You put it together, he's got perfect strength. He's all-powerful. Eyes do what? They see. They're the primary means whereby you gain knowledge. Seven perfect Perfect knowledge. He knows everything. Seven spirits sent where? Here's the key. Into all the earth. And so through the ministry of the spirit, he is what? Everywhere present. And so he is simply affirming very beautifully that the son of God, the lamb that was slain, is omnipotent. He's all powerful. He is uh, uh, omniscient. He knows all things. And he's omnipresent. He is everywhere present. So those three symbols stand for real things. But it's symbolic language. It is not telling you he's got seven horns, he's got seven eyes, and that there are seven Holy Spirits running around, not one Holy Spirit. All right? Secondly, you may ask what kind of literary devices are used. And sometimes you find poetic things, you find hyperbole, uh, you find uh, all sorts of different things we can talk about. Thirdly, is there any indication of the life situation from which the material came? Well, yes, you go back to chapter 1. You discover that John is a prisoner on the rock quarry island of Patmos. And if you do a little extra study in a a commentary or a New Testament introduction, you find out he probably wrote the book in the 90s. Domitian is the emperor. He is an old man. In fact, most likely he is the only remaining apostle who is alive. And so there are a number of things that come to help you understand the significance of this passage when you know that uh, particular background. Then number five, you analyze the structure of the passage. You say, what does that mean? You determine if the material constitutes a literary unity. Well, chapter 5, 1 through 14 does, though it is part of a vision that began in chapter 4. 
Is there a logical sequence of ideas presented? Well, yes, they are trying to find out who in the world is worthy to take the scroll from the right hand of God the Father and open it so that God's plan for the ages can be unfolded. And it works you to the point where somebody shows up who can do it. It's the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, who was slain, who is all-knowing, who is all-powerful, who is everywhere present. And after he comes in verse 7 and takes the scroll out of the right hand of him who's on the throne, all heaven breaks loose. And now everything turns into a grand and glorious worship hour because now someone has the scroll who is worthy to open that thing. And when that thing gets open, the rest of history is going to unfold and the sovereign God is going to accomplish his providential perfect purpose. And so he's, he begins to be worshipped by, by humans, then he's worshipped by angels, and then it keeps building. Humans worship him, then they're joined by angels, and by the time you get to verse 13 and 14, the entirety of the creation is worshiping the lamb who was slain but is standing you isolate then the basic themes or emphases well it's very clear that the main theme of chapter five is the lamb Uh, he is the center of attention and everything is going to revolve around who the lamb is and then as you begin and at different points you may be able to do this you say when do you outline a passage when it comes to me as i'm doing my study sometimes i can outline it early sometimes i outline it late i don't get all bogged down about that i just outline it as i'm studying it and that will become later a framework for my teaching now let's go back and we're going to pick up the pace and walk through our structure very fast so we study the scriptures. We make observations. What do I see? We make uh, interpretation. What does it mean? Then we structure the scriptures, which is the skeleton where we find the seams. That's a Jerry Vines phrase. We're looking for where an idea changes from one direction to another direction. We want to look at the argument of the author. What is he trying to prove? That's a good question to always ask. What is he trying to prove? What is he trying to tell me? What is it that he wants me both? As you'll see at the top of the page, two questions you must ask every text, every time you study it. What does he want me to know? And what does he want me to do? So what does he want me to know in chapter 5? He wants you to know that the lamb is worthy. What does he want you to do? He wants you to worship the lamb who is worthy. Now that's simple, but I'd be willing to go to the math that that's the chapter 5. The lamb is worthy. You should worship the lamb. That's what he wants you to know. That's what he wants you to do. So you look to find the main argument. That then will lead you to number three. The main idea of the text. The mitt, as I call it, or the heart. And again, you raise questions. What was the main point then? In other words, when John wrote Revelation, and in particular Revelation 5, what was his main point? Now you say, how do you answer that? By a theme and a compliment. Theme, what is the biblical author talking about? Well, in Revelation 5, he's talking about the lamb who was slain. What is he saying, the compliment? What is the biblical author saying about what he is talking about? Well, he's telling you he's worthy. Why is he worthy? Because he was slain. Why is he worthy? Because he is the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. Why is he worthy? Because he is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He's everywhere present. Why is he worthy? Because he is the only one in all of creation who can approach the throne of God and take a book out of God's hand. 
You tried, you're dead. You tried, you're toast. But he goes up and he takes it. And what does heaven do? They just go crazy in worship and praise and adoration. So what is he talking about? What is he saying about what he is talking about? And so this is what I call, in terms of my model, the work that is done in the past, the work that is done in the study, and it helps address the main question, what does God want my people to know? And I tell my students, if your people don't learn something about biblical content from your teaching then you have failed. That's one of the problems today with uh, many of the seeker churches. That's the problem today with much topical preaching, with much needs-based preaching, all this how-to preaching, how to get over depression, how to get over worry, how to have financial freedom, how to be a good time manager. Now, I'm not against any of those things. But that may teach me some principles about life, but that's not really why I come to church. I come to church... To hear from God. And the only way I'll hear from God is if you take me into God's Word and you teach me things in terms of knowledge that's in that text. All right? So what do I want my people to know? But then you notice at the top of my pyramid what I call the bridge. And the bridge allows us to begin to take the steps from the then, that is the past of the text, To the now, and that is the people that I will be teaching the Bible. And I complement it then with a second question. Not only do I want my people to know certain things, I also want my people to do certain things as well, which the text is going to guide me. Uh, The text is going to teach me. The text is going to inform me of how to help my people apply the Word of God. In fact, Howard Hendricks, in his wonderful book, Living by the Book, says there's three steps to Bible study. Observation, interpretation, application. And it's like a mantra. Observation, what do I see? Interpretation, what does it mean? Application, what do I do with it? And you never complete the process unless you answer that third question, what do I do with what I have learned? So, let's assume for a moment that this coming Sunday, all of you have a teaching assignment. Now, you can imagine whatever level you want. Maybe some of you are going to be teaching children. Some of you are going to be teaching youth. Some of you are going to be teaching young adults, medium adults, uh, ancient adults. But you're going to be teaching adults, okay? You're just going to be teaching some area of this church, all right? So in Revelation 5 is your text. Revelation 5 is your text. You say, Dan, you think you can teach children Revelation 5? Yep. It'd be kind of, I think, fun. It'd be a challenge. Yeah, you could teach children about Revelation 5. They're not stupid. As, as I say repeatedly, we teach them when they get to school geometry and calculus and biology and chemistry, but we can't teach them the Bible? What's that all about? It's about the craziest argument I've ever heard in my life, but we just dumb everything down. Treat them like they're a bunch of imbeciles. And then surprise that when they leave here, the things of God don't matter a whole lot to them. Man, teach them from the time they're very little. They're a lot smarter than you think they are. Well, that's my little sermon. I wasn't supposed to do that tonight. But anyway, so now we're at the, we're, we're, step number five. What is the main idea of the message? In other words, here's the question. What is my main point today? Well, my main point today, tonight, is the Lamb of God is worthy to be worshipped and praised because He was slain. 
There's my main idea. So what am I going to be talking about? I'm going to talk about the lamb that was slain. What am I going to say about the lamb that was slain? Well, I'm going to tell you that he's worthy because he's all-knowing. He's everywhere present and he's omnipotent. He fulfills Old Testament prophecy as the line of the tribe of Judah and the root of David. And in heaven, they just think he's the most wonderful thing in the world. All of humanity in heaven worships him. All the angels in heaven worship him. Eventually, all the creation is going to worship him. Well, my goodness, if everybody else isn't on that, why wouldn't I be involved in that too? In other words, Revelation 5 should drive you to do what you see at the very end. Look at verse 14. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders, what? What did they do? Fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. There's my application, by the way. If you really work through Revelation 5 as you ought, by the time you finish, at least in your heart, if not with your body, you ought to be on your knees thanking God for the lamb that was slain, but who is now standing as the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent Son of God who's coming again. That's what ought to happen at the end of Revelation 5. Then what you do at step number 6 is you outline your text. Now, here's what's beautiful about this model. Whatever outline I came up with with step number 2 becomes my outline for step number 6. In other words, I will tell my students, and Dr. Heisler's here tonight, and he and I are one mind on this. I want them to have just as many points in their message as you naturally see in the text. Now, there can be judgment calls. And sometimes one person may see three, and another may see four, or one may see two. But there's not going to be like one sees three, another sees 14. Uh, That's not going to happen. And so you simply want to allow the text to drive your understanding. You might could debate with me if you wanted to, just how many points I ought to see in the first seven verses. But I can tell you this, there's no way to debate verses 8 through 14. Because 8 through 14 is built around three magnificent uh, groups that are singing hymns to the praise of the Lamb. Look at it with me very quickly. Verse 8. Now, when he had taken the scroll, who's group number one? The four living creatures, the 24 elders, they fell down before the Lamb. They had a harp. A golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. So the saints, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they're singing a song. You are worthy. And there you see their song in verse 9 and verse 10. You say, well, how do you know that's a self-contained thought? Look at the first phrase of verse 11. Then I looked. So now you see something else. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders. The number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. Well, what were they doing? Well, they start singing too. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. And you see their song going through verse 12, verse 13. And now there's another group. Every creature which is in heaven, on the earth, under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard them singing, blessing and honor. Glory and power be to him who sits on the throne, God the Father, Lamb forever and ever, God the Son. So in essence, what do you have in the 8 through 14? You've got three singing groups. And you got three hymns. So you would break it down into hymn number one, hymn number two, hymn number three. I mean, how else would you do it? Now, I'm not trying to be condescending or arrogant, but I mean, you know, how else would you do it? Well, I'd have five, Brother Danny. Why? How could you do that? I mean, that text is just screaming at you, you know, one, two, three. 
It's like when you take the text in Colossians 3, 18 through 21. I almost did from him, I think. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Something like that. Fathers, do not uh, discourage your children lest they become exasperated or something like that. All right? Now, folks, if you were outlining those four verses, there's like really only one way to outline it. God has a job description, number one, for wives. That's verse 18. God has a job description, number two, for husbands. That's verse 19. God has a job description for parents, or excuse me, for children, number three, that's verse 20. And God has a job description for fathers, verse 21, that's point number four. Now, you say, well, I just have one point. Why? How could you do that? Because he's got four separate groups he's addressing in four verses. Now, that's just a very easy text to do. My point is simply this, folks, and I'm about to wrap this up. I really do have a conviction that this book is the Word of God. I really do. And I believe the Holy Spirit put it together the way that He wanted to put it together. Who am I to say to the Holy Spirit, sorry, but you packaged it poorly and I can do it better? So that's why I I personally, I just hate and disdain topical preaching. I, I loathe it. And I even find in it, though that's probably not overt, in fact, I'm sure it's not. It's arrogant. It's arrogant for you to say, I know how to package God's Word better than does He. I just find that to be off the scale in terms of either foolishness or arrogance. Neither one is a commendable trait for anyone. So when I structure the message, I outline it with the same number of points as I found when I did my work on number two. I think it's always good. And again, Dr. Hosh and I have one mind here. Outlining complete sentences, it helps you know that you really grasp what he is talking about with a subject and what he is talking about with a verb. I also think it's good to outline in the present tense. Why? Because you're talking to people today. So talk to them. In other words, I would say we should worship the Lamb. Uh, because he is omnipotent. We should worship the Lamb because he is omniscient. We should worship the Lamb because he is omnipresent. We should, present tense, right now, do this. Not, they did this. The angels worshipped him. The creation worshipped him. Uh, the humans worshipped No, 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 no. What are you going to do today, tonight, with what the Word of God is commanding you to do? Put him in present tense. Tie them all to the text. Then finally, you're going to teach. And I'll just say this briefly because my main thrust during these five weeks is to study the Bible. But you know what? You're going to have an introduction because you've got to stand up and start sometime. And you're going to have a conclusion because you've got to sit down and be quiet sometime. My instructions is always try to start well, end better. And in the middle, you're going to explain the Bible. And how do you explain it? Well, you expound it. You look to ways to illustrate it. And again, you should be applying it, but letting the text itself apply God's word for you. And if you'll do that, God has promised you that he'll bless you. When I was in Atlanta, uh, Forest Park, Georgia, 1920, did not walk with God. But the Lord got a hold of my life. And I began to go to Sunday school. I hadn't been to Sunday school in probably seven or eight years. There was a man named Dan Brackett. Dan Brackett 
never talked in any way other than a monotone just like this. He never changed his voice in terms of its speed. He never changed his voice in terms of its volume. He just talked like this all of the time. Furthermore, he had a body of notes over here. And he never looked up. I never saw any time he taught the Bible, the idea of me like making eye contact with you. Or, no, sir. He, he's just down here just, just talking like that. You said, it must have been terrible. No, it was wonderful. I'm in the ministry today because of him. Because it was very clear every time he stood up, he had spent hours just studying the Bible. And all he did week after week after week after week after week was just in a very simple straightforward, not pizzazz kind of a way, explain the Bible. And God has said, my word will not return what? Void. It will always accomplish that purpose for which I send it. You don't have to be an Adrian Rogers. If you'll just faithfully teach the word, God will bless you. And especially, even even better, God will bless those who hear you teach the word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that, Lord, we all will be uh, diligent students of your word. Rightly dividing the word of truth. It is truth. And we need to rightly divide it. Lord, there may be many, many applications in your text. But there's only one meaning. And we need to strive to honor the meaning that was deposited there by the Holy Spirit. Through the human authors that you supernaturally uh, guided and superintended. To write your infallible and inerrant word. And Lord, I pray that you will bless our study in the coming weeks. That all of us will be better more faithful, and more excited when it comes to teaching your word. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.com. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.